You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, everyone, welcome back to the show. Today we have on Dylan Marmba. Dylan is a principal in Requity Group, which oversees, in his role, he oversees acquisitions, manages investor communication, and plays an active role in the TRG Living, which is the in-house management company. With over six years of real estate experience, he has led or sponsored or JV'd in over $60 million of transactions. So a lot of information we can learn from him. But his experience ranges from educational services to multifamily to mobile home parks. And today we're going to dig into the incredible asset class of mobile home parks, something that I'm still learning a lot about. And I've actually got a deal on my desk right now for a mobile home park. So I'm hoping I can run some information by you. But I'll stop there and just say, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Matt. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Absolutely. So we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Well, it really depends on the day, but today I'll go with Moose Tracks. Okay. What's in Moose Tracks? Is that the one with the uh, almonds and... I want to say it's almonds, some chocolate, and most importantly, the peanut butter cups. <laughs> do you do you put any uh, toppings on it or is it just Moose Tracks? Just Moose Tracks. There's enough variety in it. Okay. As is. Okay. Any uh, Any specific brand or just wherever you can find it? wherever I can find it. Good, good, love it. So uh, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? So today I'm mainly focused on mobile home communities throughout the Southeast. I got my start in commercial real estate with multifamily about five years back. And over the last year, I've been very active on the, in the MH world and less active in the multifamily world uh, under the new company. Awesome, and then where did your real estate journey begin? As it does for many, it began working a W-2 job and saving up to buy a single family rental, which then led to a duplex and then eventually led to me quitting my W-2 job and going full-fledged in the commercial space after doing a joint venture on an apartment deal and realizing that I can create a career out of multifamily, multifamily syndication and, and so on. Yeah. And I've heard that you moved across the country just to straight up jump into it. Is that right? I moved across the country a few times. So hopefully now I'm here in Tampa, as we discussed, uh, hopefully this will be a long-term stay for me here. But initially moved across the country first from New York out to San Diego to pursue the, the whole lifestyle by design entrepreneurship model and getting into real estate, living by the beach and so on. And then I eventually realized that San Diego was not a great real estate investing market. So the point where I left my W-2, I flew from San Diego out to Atlanta to be in what I saw as the hub of the Southeast. And that sort of led to the next thing. And I've been in the Southeast ever since. Both of you and I seem like we're younger guys and your, your story is pretty similar to mine in the fact that I've moved four times for my career now. Mm-hmm. And I tell people it's, it's, it's hard to do, right? You're uprooting your life. You're moving to places where you don't know, but it's the most impactful thing you can do as well, because it kind of forces you to get out there meet new people, learn new cultures, see different sides of the world, et cetera. Anything you can uh, comment on that? Cause you seem to have moved a couple of different times. Absolutely. As mentioned, I hope to not make many more major leaps in my (laughs) life, but the leaps that I've made thus far have been some of the most pivotal time periods in my life when it comes to the personal growth aspect of things, especially thinking back to my first move, going from being, you know, a 20 year old growing up in 
in upstate New York and going off to a party school to immerse in myself around entrepreneurs and people that are really pushing for you know, ambitious goals in their life and investing in real estate and things along those lines. I think that year I must have grown up more than any other year that I can think back to. Uh, and, and I definitely encourage for other folks that are young to do it at some point in your life to pick up and move to somewhere where you don't know anyone and you have the opportunity to sort of recreate your life. And I think you'll learn a lot about yourself in the process. Yeah. And I think 2020 was a pivotal year for people to really reevaluate where they are, whether that be in their career or locations or things like that. Any words of encouragement you would give on how you were able to just pick up and move your life a couple of different times there for opportunities that you saw? I don't think it's ever as daunting as it may appear on the yeah. surface level. I think doing it once or twice you'll build a certain level of resilience and realizing that you can pick up and start from scratch and you will make it out in an okay position. I think it, it sort of helps you deal with taking risks um, and well and sort of managing that uh, well. That's similar to my first multifamily um, investment too, is like I was so used to buying single families that bigger portfolios just added a bunch of zeros, felt like there's a lot of different things that could go wrong and things like that. But once you do it once, once you do it second time, it just seems like you're in a motion and in a rotation. So um, so you, you started with single family, you grew to the duplex, and then you jumped into multifamily. So before we get to the mobile home parks, why did you go from single family to multifamily? Like what, it, what attracted you to, to move bigger? Well, initially for me, it was seeing that I could build a career path around multifamily investing and have a way of building a platform where I could bring on investor capital and offer that as a service or product to investors to be able to give them a nice, you know, consistent passive uh, vehicle to invest their capital in. That's an alternative to the stock market. And I felt like I was providing a good service in doing that. And at the same time, being able to build a business around that to me was just a, just a, a really, really exciting concept and something that I'm still excited about today in, in, in putting it into to practice. So I really like the idea of being able to build a business around it versus just solely investing my own capital along the way. I think I felt like I was doing something where I could eventually hire more people, serve more people, add value and, and build sort of a community around it. Um, and that's still how I feel largely about it um, because I know everyone has different sort of investing goals. But for me, what always has gotten me excited is building a company and putting the processes in place and building the team around it so that it's not just me on my own island, but it's it's you know a team of us working towards the same sort of common mission. So multifamily and multifamily syndication was the vehicle that I saw as a great vehicle for me to do so. And then naturally on my first deal, it was multifamily, it was 21 units. There was me and a few friends of mine and we did a joint venture deal where we all invested in the deal together. I'm a big believer that you know, definitely, especially on your first deal, you should always have uh, your own money at risk, right? Not be bringing on investor money into the, the first time you're going into it as you're getting the kinks out of the way. And then even on your other deals, Early on, I think you should always be partnering with experience. I just think to, to play to wear sort of the fiduciary hat, helping working with advisors, I think that working with investors, I think that's uh, you know, very, uh, very important. Yeah. I mean, you brought out two important concepts that I'm hearing too, is one is scale. So if you're thinking about it from an investment standpoint and you want to get into real estate, you need to think about your salary or your target amount you want to make and things like that and divide it by 200. That's how many single family doors you're going to get. 
Whereas if you're looking at it from a multi standpoint or fund standpoint, you need to be thinking about how much money do you need to get and then divide it by the return that you're going to get percentage return. And that's how much money. And usually you'll find you need less money in terms of scaling, whether it's multifamily, mobile home parks and things like that. The second is like partnerships and teams. So I'm a big thing. I'm a big proponent of multifamily and um, funds and, and doing bigger real estate deals as a team sport. You mentioned partnering with folks on a JV. Any tips or tricks for how you found these partners, how you vetted them, how do you make sure they're the right fit and things like that? Well, one of the partners was one of my best friends from college. So we had an existing relationship, which made things very easy. And then one was his brother-in-law. The other one was actually the realtor that was selling us the deal. So we all, we all sort of had some sort of warm connection to each other, which I think made it a very natural uh, fit and, and it's been a very easy sort of partnership when, when it comes to partnering on that deal. But I will say that partnering on a deal versus partnering on a business are two completely different things. And I think when you're getting started, you need to be well aware of that, right? Because you can partner on a deal with someone that might be very difficult to partner with on a business, right? And it could go perfectly fine on that deal because you don't have the same tie, right? When you're partnering in a business, you're somewhat tied to the hip, right? And you're typically doing all of the deals together. You have to get on the same page about each deal you do. And you might have different risk tolerances or different viewpoints along the way. And you might just have a completely different vision for the trajectory of the business. If you want to bring on investor capital, or if you want to run it with your own money, um, if you want to stay within one state or if you want to scale into different states, right? So, so being able to find alignment and, and a, a good level of agreement with a partner in a business uh, on all of those different decisions is radically different than partnering on a deal. On a deal itself, you need to partner with someone that just believes in that one deal and sees eye to eye with that deal and the business plan on that deal. So you want to make sure you're okay with the same, you have the same sort of goals for your exit strategy. If it's a refinance and a long-term hold, or if it's something that you want to sell in a few years, you want to discuss those things up front. I always recommend putting an operating agreement in place, right? So figuring out who's the controlling partner and, and who is not. There is going to be a controlling partner. What are the voting rights across the board? One thing that I'm big on, which I think a lot of people overlook out of excitement getting into their first joint venture deal is thinking about how someone's going to be compensated because even if it's a 21 unit deal, if you're doing all of the work and you agree to not take an asset management fee or anything along those lines, I just think that that could lead to resentment down the road because it sounds exciting in the first six months you're learning, you're growing, but four years into that deal, if you're still the one working with the accountants nonstop, if you're still the one paying all the utility bills, and if you're still the one actively managing the manager day in and day out, and your partners are really getting it treated like it is a truly passive investment, then I think you're getting the short end of the stick because your active work alone might not even be worth or might just be worth the cash flow that you're getting you know, day to day, right? So, so I am big on assigning roles and responsibilities and making sure that the compensation is, is in alignment with roles and responsibilities. Because for anyone that's, that's done deals on the active side and tasted that, they realize that it is always an active business, even if you have a third-party management company. And I think that once you get a taste of that, you realize why syndications the, the structures and the fees that, that come along with syndications are very fair and, and well-earned by sponsors that are doing a quality job uh, in finding deals and property. 
you really said alignment there, which I'm taking from this. And, and I love that idea of align on a deal first before you align on a business, because I, I think you laid out a pretty compelling case there on like deal. You just need to focus on that deal business. I mean, you're doing everything together, where you grow, where you scale, what risk you take, what risk you don't take and things like that. So you were in single family, you moved to multifamily, and now you do mobile home parks. So th- you're the first person we've had on our show to talk about mobile home parks. And it's a super interesting uh, asset class. And for those of you out there that might be thinking this is a trailer park and you're not interested, I want you to stay tuned because there's a lot of value in this space. But uh, I want to first go into why did you decide to make the shift from multifamily to mobile home parks? Well, I had a year where I went from closing two of what at the time were the larger deals that I'd worked on. I closed a, a you know, $10 million uh, deal and a, and a $6 million deal in the same week. Uh, and it, I was thrilled. These are multifamily deals. And I felt all the you know, winds of momentum behind my back. And I thought, this is it. I'm going to be doing a deal a month from here on out, right? Because I figured it out. And then I went a year without doing any deals. Anyone in this space knows it's gotten very competitive. Uh, returns have, have decreased and, and it's harder to get the same levels of yield, right? I remember when I first got in, everyone was searching for 10% cash on cash. Then they went searching for 8% cash on cash. And now today it's maybe 5 or 6% cash on cash, right? So I watched in a very short period of time, four or five years, the yields that are that folks are targeting on, on the same deals in many cases, just becoming increasingly less. So, so for me, I think that I might've been stuck. Now I'm not saying there's not good deals out there because there is, and I'll still buy apartment deals, um, you know, especially that are local here in Tampa. Um, but I found that the way I was looking at deals, at least during that year, um, was not really talking about alignment again. <laughs> I wasn't in, aligned with, with where the market was at that time, right? Things had just moved pretty quickly. So um, I had, I was in Knoxville, Tennessee at the time, which is really, for those that are familiar with Jim Clayton and Clayton Homes, that they're based, they have this gigantic dynasty, <laughs> feels like based out of uh, uh, Knoxville. And it's almost like the motherland of mobile homes in a way. So, so um, being there, I had a few friends that had been actively involved in the space. And for, I had the tunnel vision. I thought I would only be in apartments for the rest of my entire career. I never, you know, I never, never thought I would have to go into some, some other space, but um, in that moment, maybe amidst some slight frustration, I, uh, I started to you know, give my friends that were investing in mobile home parks a little bit more attention and, and listen to what they were looking for. And I heard yields that would be to die for if I was investing in apartments. I heard about strong double digit yields year one in, in many cases. And just that backed by the fact that um, I saw the fact that there's uh, the average stay of someone in a tenant owned home is 15 to 20 years where in apartments you're dealing with a 50% turnover. So half of your folks are leaving every year. You're dealing with the CapEx risk and the the constant improvements of the homes um, versus just having 15 to 20 years, you have one of the stickiest residence space, more than even most office space or any other long-term leases that are are available for other types of commercial real estate. So so just seeing the two of those things um, and and really I had that light bulb moment of seeing that this is a holds one of the best um, risk-adjusted returns available. Plus, they're not building any more for the most part. There is, there is some development, but there's still usually a negative net supply year over year. Um, I, I just really saw that this is something I'd feel very comfortable investing into and, and also working with the investors that I'd built relationships over the years and, and bringing them into 
um, just because I saw it being such a secure sort of platform. So that's what initially sparked my interest. Yeah, when you say Knoxville, I'm a University of Tennessee graduate, so I got to say go Vols. Uh, oh, nice. And then uh, Clayton Holmes is actually owned by Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, if I'm not mistaken. Is that mm-hmm. right? That's yeah. right. Clayton Holmes and 21st Mortgage, which is also, uh, I believe, a subsidiary of Clayton Holmes. Yeah. So for anybody out there doubting the asset class, let's just go ahead and start with the investor of all investors of all time. Warren Buffett is in this space selling mobile homes. He's Um, owning the homes and he also owns the largest financing company of the homes. Yeah. Right. He doesn't own communities himself, but he owns all different aspects of what goes into these. So you said negative supply in mobile home parks. And I want to touch on that for a minute. I have my theory on that, but I want to hear why are we seeing net negative supply, which means, I guess, for people out there, for listeners out there, that there's more demand than supply coming on each year. So if a thousand people are asking for a mobile home, then 900 of them might be created. Why is why is that happening? Well, it's not happening because there's no demand for it. It's happening for what I believe is two reasons. Number one, in the areas where you'd want to develop, where the economics would meaning the average lot rent would be high enough to where it would be worth your while to spend, I, I'm just ballparking, ballparking completely, but spend 30000 or so per lot to, to develop the infrastructure to, to develop mobile homes. In those areas, you're typically up against NIMBY laws, rules and regulations, which are not in my backyard rules and regulations, right? Where, where the folks that are living in the single family communities or the apartment complexes around will, will protest against it, right? So counties have put up restrictions when it comes to changing the zoning for the land to be able to effectively develop uh, manufactured home communities in there. Um, and then in the areas where you are able to develop, where the counties do not have restrictions, the economics typically don't make sense, right? There are plenty of areas throughout the country that were, where they would be perfectly fine. They'd probably welcome you to develop, but the lot rent just simply is not high enough in those areas to where you can make sense of the development costs going in. Yeah, so I think that's it right there, the Nibby example, right? If I'm a congressman for a city and I have some land that I want to give away or auction off or sell off or something like that, I would much rather sell it to one of the big tech companies like Apple and say I created all these jobs or sell it to a developer that's going to build a luxury apartment complex or hotel because it makes it look good versus providing what's needed, which is affordable housing for people that need it. And ultimately, I want to just go ahead and throw out a thought here is that people, I think mobile home parks have a bad stigma to them because you tend to think of a lower socioeconomic class, which brings tends to think in people's mind that it brings problems. I would like to point out that I lived in Austin for a year and a half in a A-class property, an apartment complex, and there were kids all the time getting drunk and throwing trash everywhere. And it's not uncommon for me to walk out my door and see like light fixtures hanging down because people did stupid things. So you're going to find this across any socioeconomic class. It just seems like we stigmatize one over the other. Um, so I want to go. Taxes, I, I completely agree. Just to build off what you're saying there too, even if they're looking at it from a sheer number standpoint, the taxes generated from a mobile home community will not compare with what you talked about a hotel or a yep. larger complex. Yep. Yep. So, um, for our listeners out there, I, when I think of mobile home parks, I think there's two like sub segments. There's like an RV campground park where people are traveling all across the country and they need a place to park, whether that's like a KV campground or something like that. And then there's like mobile home, which is a manufacturer 
there's no wheels on the building. You put it there and then um, either the park owns it or the tenant owns the home. And let's talk about mobile home parks uh, in general. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different terms out there like lot rent, tenant owned homes, seller finance, all that kind of stuff. What are you looking at when you look for a mobile home community to invest in? Mm -hmm. The second one, as you mentioned, when you hear mobile home, it's sort of a deceiving name because the majority of these homes are not mobile. They were mobile at one point and they were able to be, they were able to be towed to, to the um, park at one point. But once they've been installed, then at that point, they're no longer mobile and would cost you usually four to 6,000, I meant in some cases, to be able to move these from one community to the next one. Um, so... That's why I know the industry is slowly branding the name to manufactured housing, which is, is probably more accurate, but it will take time for, <laughs> for that to, to change. So uh, yeah, that, that's typically what we're dealing with is either single wide or double wide homes that were brought to the community and installed there. And the way that most communities function is that the residents will actually own their own home. So they'll have purchased the home and brought it to the community or purchased it in many cases from the community developer or owner, right? And they will then pay lot rent, which means that they own the home, but they're still paying rent to the community owner for the upkeep of the roads, the upkeep of the utility systems, in many cases, the upkeep of the landscaping. It could be them to mow their lawn all of the time and all of the management that takes place, making sure that their neighbors are sticking to the community rules and regulations um, and there's proper violation notices and keeping sanity you know, across the, throughout the, throughout the community, right? So, so you can think about it in many ways, similar to a condo, right? Where a condo is paying an HOA due and they have the HOA that sort of runs the mobile home community. Um, some mobile home communities do actually have an HOA and they are, so it is managed by the actual owners themselves, but to not complicate it very much, the more often than not, you're dealing with residents that own their own homes, but there is one owner of the actual community themselves who collects a lot rent from them uh, month to month. Now, to your point, the nuances that is, are important to be familiar with is yes, what, what I just talked about is a resident owned or a tenant owned home. You'll see that sometimes abbreviated as a TOH, right? And as an investor, that's oftentimes what you're asking are how many lots are occupied. Usually occupied just means that there's a home in that lot when you're talking about base level occupancy. So there might be vacant lots in many cases that have utility setups, but there's no homes that are currently there. That's a vacant lot. And then you figure out how many are actually occupied and then out of the ones that are occupied, are they TOH or POH? POH being park-owned home, right? Which is when the community actually owns that home uh, themselves. And in that case, they actually will rent it out to a resident. And that function is much more similar to an apartment or a single family home investment where the resident's paying an all-in fee where maybe the lot rent would have been three or $400, but their all-in rent is maybe 700, 800 because they don't own the home. So they're just paying a rental fee, which is much higher. Now, we run a hybrid model where we've actually purchased, we don't solely, a lot of owners solely target resident-owned, tenant-owned homes because of the obvious benefits. It's going to be much, much easier to manage, right? Because you're not dealing with the constant turnover. You have a 15 to 20-year average stay versus a maybe two to three-year average stay. You, you have minimal CapEx risk. You're not in charge of the HVACs when they break down. You're not in charge of turning 
the replacing the floors every couple of years. You're not in charge of the repairing the roofs or cool sealing the roofs on a constant basis, right? If you don't own the homes. Being that I come from the apartment background, we felt comfortable taking on large communities that have a large segment of park-owned homes. So they do function more like an apartment complex. They do have the higher turnover, but our being value-add investors, our value-add is going into the communities, running them well, keeping good collections, keeping low delinquency, and finding the right, you know, screening our residents well. Then over time, converting from a heavy park-owned home community to a tenant-owned home community. And at that point, we will de-risk the investment in some ways. We'll make it more eligible for more attractive financing options, going in with usually some kind of a niche bank debt and then eventually being positioned to look at agency debt. We're getting great cash flows along the way and, and then getting to where it's you know, largely tenant-owned homes. So we've, we've done this several times over now. We've done uh, several hundred plus unit communities that are heavy park-owned homes with you know, say 75% plus park-owned and then, and then going and converting them or at least beginning the process of converting them over to tenant owned. And that's been a little sweet spot that we've, we've enjoyed thus far, but at the same time, we're not exclusive to that. We probably will keep that as at less than 50% of our portfolios overall strategy and makeup. Um, and we will also be targeting deals that are tenant owned homes where we have rent increases and we have different ways that we can add value to the property more similar to like a standard, say value add apartment deal where it's, you know, you improve the property, invest in the property, and then you have the ability to bring it up to market rent. And then the last type of value add deal that I'll mention is an infill deal because I talked about vacant lots. You'll find it's, it's not super worrisome in most markets throughout the country to have vacant lots. You know, if I walked into an apartment building and it's 70%, uh, say 30% vacant, and I'm not sure why, that usually freaks me out a little bit because even a bad owner can usually keep an apartment building in a good area with 85% or more occupancy. So there's something off here and you really have to dig in. But when there's vacant lots, you have to think it's not that easy to fill homes in, right? A lot of residents can't afford to move their home and it's going to cost four or $5,000 to, to move the home into a lot. So the residents oftentimes aren't doing it. A lot of the owners are still mom and pop owners. They don't want to shell out a ton of cash to buy new homes and sell homes off. Homes are costing, you know, new homes are costing 40,000 plus in today's market. So the owners don't want to have to buy a home and then risk having to sell it and, and hopefully find someone good to, to purchase the home. So, so it's really not that worrisome to find vacant lots as long as the other uh, market stats are checking out, of course. And an infill can be a great value add deal because you're taking vacant lots and moving homes in and then selling them off. But right now we're very, very cautious about those kinds of deals because of everything that's that's taken place with COVID. The manufactured housing has really seen some huge supply chain gaps and the wait list to be able to get new homes is very, very long. And therefore demand for used homes is through the roof and you can't find used homes. The prices are going up there too. So, so infill is the last type of value add deal and something that we were we were initially excited about, but but uh, you know, ever since COVID, we, we've been definitely steering clear of that or very, 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 very uh, cautious. One of the questions I asked you was what interests you in the space? And I heard a couple of different things. One, demand and supply, right? So the demand for affordable housing in this country are still rising and uh, supply continues to diminish. And this seems to find a nice little niche. Two, if you get your residents from uh, park-owned homes to tenant-owned homes, then essentially all you're doing is renting the land underneath the home. So no repairs, no toilets, very minimal CapEx risk, et cetera. And then the last is you beautifully walked us through multiple 
multiple strategies you can implement just on one home. You got infill lots, you can build additional lots, you can park owned homes to tenant owned homes. There's just multiple strategies here. I mean, this is why I like this space. I'm still trying to learn a lot more about it, but this is why I like this space. Are there markets that you're looking for, like specific cities or outside of cities or talk us, talk to us a little bit about like markets that you're targeting. Right now, we're exclusively focused on Southeast markets. The majority of our portfolio is up in North Carolina and Tennessee and Florida. Lastly, I'm hoping that Florida eventually becomes our, our main focus, but that's where we are today. No particular reason besides the, the obvious of the South, Southeast being a great place where there's a lot of uh, demographic shifts taking place. And we think it's going to continue to grow quite a bit. And we just, we prefer not to be focused on the entire country. I just think it's tough to ever learn any market if you're focused on the entire country, which seems to be fairly common in this space. Now, for the cities themselves that we're targeting, we're mainly targeting, we, we look at, we basically take a 360 degree view on any market. Uh, we're definitely steering clear of states or cities that seem at risk for rent control or at least in the near future for rent control or any kind of, um, you know, things politically that, that could deem uh, financial risk for, for investing in global home communities. Um, we are looking for diverse employment based We want to see no sector make up more than 15% of the total job market. We are looking for median home price to be 180,000 or higher, 150,000 or higher, probably a safer bet. Um, just, but we want to see a big enough gap between this and, and buying a single family home. Because that's what I find. I think a lot of people think it's 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 just an alternative to buying an apartment, but or renting an apartment. But it's but it's oftentimes not. A lot of the people move into these homes because they have kids and they want space. And most of these homes are three bedrooms, so apartments are not always the best comparable. Although we do want to look at apartment pricing and see where that is versus relative to the, the you know lot rent. We also want to look at single family housing, what that looks like. Uh, I still like to always see the demographics on a, on a track level, the 40,000 or higher. That's something I've always felt that is important no matter where you are. If you can see good schools, fantastic. It's not a deal breaker if you don't have good schools, but if you're in, good, if you're in a good school area, that's going to go a, a very, very long way. So very similar to what you probably look for in single family or, or apartments across the board. I'd say that it's growth is great, but I think, I think MH investors are a little bit more open-minded to some markets that could be arguably sleepier markets, as long as it's diverse employment base, because there's so much inherent upside in a lot of these deals, just bringing it from where it is today up to the market rent, that even if the market doesn't shoot to the moon, it can still be a really, really attractive deal. So, so that's what I would say about markets. And then the last thing I'd mention is that our, our strategy is largely around getting into markets that we can achieve scale in. So I would not be interested in doing a deal that is a one-off deal in a market because we're believers that if you can accumulate scale through aggregating a portfolio, 500 plus lots, thousand plus lots that are, that are all within an hour from each other, we'll say, uh, then your potential to have a really attractive exit with a compressed cap rate is, is much, much higher because it does seem like that that is sort of the direction the space is moving in is that institutional money is continuing to come in. Uh, you have a lot of you know big groups, you have ELS, you have uh, Apollo, you have Sun, you have a lot of these large institutions that are starting to, not starting, but they, they've been actively buying um, 
lots and lots of deals. And for them, it's always going to be much easier to buy in a, in a portfolio. So we kind of see ourselves as the middlemen between, say, the mom and pops and the big institutions, right? We're going to be able to communicate with the mom and pops. We're going to do the cold calling and all of the work it takes to be able to get in front of them, buy it on an attractive basis, and then do the value add work, do the dirty work of being able to take it from a mom and pop operation to being something that's a bit more professional, having you know, good systems in place, and then the institutions can always buy it off us at, at an attractive premium after we've done all the work. Absolutely. So I want to shift gears now into the RV campground. So we've got mobile home parks, which is manufacturing home communities, and then there's RV campgrounds. I think I saw recently where you just closed on an RV campground. Can you talk to us a little bit about like, how are these assets similar? What's different about them? And maybe talk a little bit about your recent acquisition. So the first acquisition that we had in the RV campground space was 80 lots here in Florida, where half of it is mobile homes. Half of it are you know, homes that are secure to the ground, right? They're actually single wide manufactured homes. And then the other half are actual RVs, right? And the RVs in this instance, in, or in any instance, really, there, there's often three different types of RV stay, stays within a community. You have your month-to-month RVs, which oftentimes are long-term. They're oftentimes on month-to-month leases, but in many cases, they've been there for years. Then you have your dailies and your weeklies, right? So the dailies and the weeklies start to bring in a much more of a hospitality component, right? Where you're going to have generally a higher vacancy rate on average throughout the year, but you're going to be charging a premium for folks that are coming in on a daily or weekly, right? Versus what they might be paying over, say, a month to month. Your month to month might be 450, but if your dailies are $40 per day, then even if you have 70% occupancy, you're still bringing in maybe possibly double just quick math of of what uh, you can bring in on, on a monthly, right? So, so having the optimized blend of dailies, weeklies, and monthlies is going to be really how you're able to boost your income on the RV campground side of things. And it definitely is more of a, uh, it, it starts to become more of a hospitality business. A lot of these are more amenity rich. Um, one that we have under contract right now, which is our first actual 100 plus lot com- com- exclusively RV community is definitely a place that you, know, you have a lot of snowbirds that come down. Oftentimes uh, they, they'll leave their RVs there. There's a mini marina as a part of it. You have um, air hockey tables. You have a basketball court on site. You'll have fire pits all throughout, right? And, and so it's, it's much more of a campground um, where people come there as, as a luxury. So you're, you, start, you start to have a different resident base in something along these lines. Um, but I think that it's, that space is, is pretty untapped. There's much less buyers cold calling and actively seeking in that space. I think it's more operationally intensive, which I like because I like the barrier to entries, right? We're happy to go out there and get our hands dirty and be good operators, um, which that will keep a lot of the people that want to do the passive, more of a passive strategy out. Um, but I think if you can be a good operator and learn the space well, I still think we're somewhat early to the game there um, in, in the RV campground space. Yeah. And the secret is out that everybody can do work from home these days, right? I mean, that's one thing 2020 taught us is that we could be on the road. And I've had several friends, actually a big opportunity I missed in 2020 was getting it, get renting a camper and just driving throughout the West, because I would love to just go out there and visit. And so, you know, like you said, it's more of a hospitality feel. It's probably not unusual from now moving forward that people will have an RV. And if you provide Wi-Fi, they could sit there for a month and work and really enjoy 
being on the go and not being stuck in a specific city tied to a specific desk and things like that. So um, I want to transition now to the last five questions that we ask everybody. We're calling this five toppings. Um, the first one is, what is your favorite book or what is something that you've read recently that's had an impact on you? My favorite book is Principles by Ray Dalio. Uh, that's a book that I've read numerous times since it's came out. And I feel like it's helped me shape my own sort of thought processes around how to how to build and effectively grow uh, a business and, and build a meaningful culture. Dylan, we are going to have you back on the show. And that's all we're going to talk about, because that by far is something that I'm preaching from the high heavens, that you need to have your principles in life and stop trying to make decisions based off of decisions that come to you. Have your core set of principles, run the decision through there and let the principal make the decision for you. It's so much easier to operate that way. Amen. <laughs> yeah. uh, the second one is, I believe the person that you are 10 years from now will be correlated to the habits that you do every single day. What are some of the things that you do every day? I tend to try to wake up early and meditate, read. I'm a big believer in getting a daily dose of some good education, be it reading or watching good videos, um, sharpening your axe in a way. And then from there, I just do just go to, go to work and every day is different. So that's what I love about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I picked up meditating recently. It's really, really hard to start, but once you get it going, I can't go a day without doing it now, mm -hmm. just shutting things off. So, um, the third, uh, the third one is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? I would say to work on yourself harder than you work on your job. And I don't think that has to equate to a sheer number of hours working on yourself, but I think just giving, being very intentional about the time you devote to becoming better will have, will be a multiplier for how effective you are on your actual job day to day. Yeah. I think I, Jim Rome said at one time, the best form of self-love uh, love you can give is self-love. And the way Completely. you do, the way you do that is through disciplining yourself and uh, not, not having neglect. So I think um, that's who I first heard it from. Yep. 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 <laughs> Uh, man of great wisdom, by the way, every Thanks. single morning during my morning routine, I pop something on from Jim Rome just because he is phenomenal. Okay. Um, what's the thing you're most proud of in your life? I would say I'm most proud of the impact that I'm able to have on people around me. Uh, I think that's my big purpose at this point uh, is, is trying to position myself in a way where I can impact those around me through it could be through speaking and things along those lines, but I'd say that it's more, more than anything, probably just working together with friends, colleagues, peers, team members, and finding ways that I can be of, of service, add value, and have that reciprocated. Love it. Love it. The last one is, if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone, who would it be and why? Well, that, that's a tough question for me, but I, I would say that for me, someone that I've been uh, listening to quite a bit uh, along the lines of someone that's a big time investor that I respect a whole lot is Sam Zell. I've always appreciated his contrarian outlook and take, and I, I feel like he's always ahead of the curve with the way he's thinking. So if I could have just a small piece of that and start to see what others aren't seeing or see things before they see them, I think I would be much better off. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy how we uh, glorize so many investors and entrepreneurs and things like that. And Sam Zell is extremely successful 
I, I feel like he's just under the radar. Not many people know about him. So this has been great. I, I definitely want to bring you back and talk about principles because that's something I'm huge on as well. But I, I appreciate the knowledge on mobile home parks and RV communities and things like that. I think it's a tremendously untapped space right now. And you are a leader in that space. And I hope that we were able to shift some investors' minds on not the stigma side of it, but the returns and the affordable housing side of it. If people wanted to find out more about you or get in touch with you, where's the best place we could send them? Best place to find me is on LinkedIn. You can search my name, Dylan Marmot, or you can email me, Dylan, D-Y-L-A-N, at therequitygroup.com or visit our site. Perfect. And we'll include all that in the show notes. Thanks again, Dylan. Look forward to having you back on soon. Thanks a lot, Matt. Look forward to it. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.